Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review, and joining me as usual is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm here. Let's get some talk. I'm glad we got... Uh, oh, I won't spoil who you're about to say is also here. Sorry. Oh, well, it's, it's not a big secret. Also joining us is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. I'm back after a hiatus. Um, I am very thankful to the negotiations that we that Max and I just had to allow me to come back on the podcast for you. Yeah, we had a, we drive a hard bargain, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, I I, I, I won't say I'm I was quite as ruthless as the owners, but uh, yeah, it's, it was it's great having you back, uh, and hopefully we have baseball back pretty soon. We'll talk a little bit uh, later on in the podcast about some of the latest in ne- the labor negotiations and whether or not we think baseball will be back pretty soon. But first, I did want to kind of talk about the draft a little bit more. Uh, the draft is now complete, and while it was shortened to just five rounds, the Royals were able to add some talent to the farm system. Last time on the podcast, uh, Sean and I discussed the first day of the draft uh, with the Royals getting Texas A&M reliever, or left-handed starting pitcher, Aza Lacey, with the, with the number four pick overall. The Royals also gra- grabbed Baylor shortstop Nick Lofton at the uh, number th- pick number 32, uh, Matthew, you, you were on with us last week, so I, did, I guess I wanted to quickly get kind of your thoughts on the first day of the draft. With the number four pick, it seemed like the Royals were kind of in the catbird seat. Uh, how did you feel about them taking Lacey over some of the other options? Are yeah, I was I was pretty happy that the Royals got Lacey. Um, in in this draft, at least, there was a consensus top three players. Uh, there was Spencer Torkelson, who went first overall. No surprise there. Um, and then right below him, in some order, were uh, Ace Lacey and uh, Austin Martin. And in a normal draft, like in the NBA, where uh, there's uh, not a whole lot other going on other than you know picking uh, your players, um, it would have gone one, two, three. Those those three players. But in the baseball draft, there's more things at play while you can't trade draft picks. There is this sort of shenanigans regarding um, slot bonus value. So basically you have X amount of dollars to spend on the draft overall. And so rather than spending say um, a lot of money on one excellent prospect, um, you may decide to not spend that money and instead pick up two very good prospects um, and so that's basically what the second and third uh, teams, I believe it was the Orioles and the Marlins ahead of the Royals, decided to do. They decided not to pick the one of the top three uh, talents on the board. And so basically that pushed down the choice of Lacey or Martin to the Royals. Um, and they chose Lacey. And, you know, we won't really know until years down the road whether or not Lacey or Martin was the right pick. Um, but I think... It's, it's important to note that those two were clearly the best two players on the draft board. Um, it wasn't just the Royals who thought this. Um, you know, Like I said, the industry thought that there were three consensus top picks, and the Royals are should be happy they got one of those with the fourth spot, um, which doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes things just go, and you're on the outside looking in. But that wasn't the case this year. Um, like I said, we'll see in years if if Martin was the better choice. Um, some people thought that Martin was the best prospect in the draft, um, but the Royals decided to go with a college pitcher, which is you know fits their mo. Um, and at 32, they picked uh, Nick Lofton, who uh, is kind of like Brady McConnell last year in terms of a uh, you know athletic shortstop uh, who can stick there. Um, and if he can hit, you know, then he'll be a pretty good player. And if not, then, you know, maybe a utility guy uh, down the road, but 
Um, it's hard to fault them for picking a position player there because their system is so heavily skewed towards pitching. Um, you know, now in addition to Brady Singer and Jackson Coer and Daniel Lynch, they now have Lacey, who's the sort of fourth uh, horseman of this college picker, college pitcher apocalypse. Good Lord. And uh, that's a pretty, you know, heavy pitching top end. Um, last year when they actually played baseball, remember that? It was fun. Kind of. Um, <laughs> the uh, position players that the Royals had, um, think of Nick Prado and the like, they really sort of didn't do so well on a whole. So it makes sense that the Royals were, um, you know, pick someone like Lofton 32 as opposed to another pitcher, which I thought they might, and maybe they would have had their position prospects done a little bit better last year. But ultimately, you know, we don't know what would have happened if that had happened last year. Um, the Royals seemed to pick the best player on the board for them, which was Lacey, and it's hard to fault them for doing that, especially when he was not projected to last until the fourth uh, pick of the draft. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, you could quibble with what, who they chose because there were so many good options, I think. Um, and, and and John and I kind of discussed this last week, but, you know, I don't think anyone is upset with the pick at all. I think he's a Lacey. You know, I think a lot of people are thrilled that the Royals were able to get a player as good as Lacey. I think there are some that wanted Martin instead uh, just because a lot of the other uh, consensus uh, was that Martin was the best second best player if not some people thought he was the best player in this draft uh i think also maybe position players are a little safer than pitchers but uh you know lacy certainly seems like a guy with great upside pitching uh, is very is at a premium um i don't see any problem with doubling down on pitching especially knowing the attrition rate for pitchers so i think lacy makes a lot of sense for those reasons uh the lofton pick i think drew a little more um kind of questions from people it he seems to be really really well regarded by baseball people including like baseball america and mlb pipeline um but i think a lot of the fans were kind of looking at his numbers and saying like huh i don't see it with this guy and you know we'll see um you know he's a he's a college guy so he should be fairly well polished and you think he'd be a a guy that could rise at a pretty good rate through the system Uh, and and like you said you know maybe a utility guy maybe something more i mean ben zobrist looked like a utility guy and just and then kind of turned on the power and became a very valuable middle infielder. Uh, maybe that, you know, that that could be Nick Lofton or he could be just like a, a nice, useful uh, bench guy, which that has a lot of utility as well. So I think overall, like we all, Sean and I, I think both agreed it was a pretty good first day for the Royals. We haven't got a chance to discuss the second day. Of course, the second day, uh, we only had five rounds. So the Royals were only able to draft rounds two through five on the second day. They chose pitcher uh, high school pitcher Ben Hernandez out of the Chicago area in round two a uh, young right-hander who uh, was known for his changeup. in round three they selected uh, college outfielder Tyler Gentry out of the University of Alabama uh, a right-handed power hitter uh, in the fourth round they took left-handed pitcher Christian Chamberlain out of Oregon State uh, kind of known as a, a gritty gamer on the mound who helped uh, the, the Beavers uh, go to the College World Series and they wrapped up their draft in the fifth round by taking right-hander Will Klein out of the out of uh, Eastern Illinois University. Uh, Klein has a big fastball in the high 90s, but might profile more as a reliever. Sean, uh, you know, looking back on day two now, what was kind of your take on how the Royals attacked the draft, and and were you, I guess, what kind of grade would you give them for their draft overall? Yeah, so I think the day two, I think I like the day two Ben Hernandez pick more than the Lofton pick. Um, and I, 
someone had a really good comp. I think Clint's goals of uh, Royals Academy had a really good. Comp. I forget what it is, but go, go, go read Clint's goals. Uh, Tyler Gentry. Gosh, I can't remember who he comped him to, but it was a pretty good one of a guy who's probably going to strike out a good bit, but might be able to figure out a little bit. Good defender, um, and I think Chamberlain and Clint are both just relievers, um, which is fine. I mean, I, I don't care about the picks. 105 and 135 necessarily um it, unless it's like the padres who took cole wilcox got a good deal with him um so i thought the i thought the ben and uh, the ben hernandez pick was the best part of day two uh, and like i said i like hernandez more than lofton um i would have been fine with her with hernandez at uh 32 um and then lofton at 41 or you know but um for day two i don't know i don't know how you can give day two anything better than like a c or C plus, like it just was fine. I, I don't think that they got anything great uh, necessarily as far as like, wow, I can't believe they got that guy that late. Um, and then I gave the overall grade. Oh no, I, oh no, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to uh, to under undercut what I graded on my article. I think I gave it a B, I want to say. Uh, hold on, then I got to pull it up. Uh, B minus is what I would say. Um, just because I prefer Martin over uh, Lacey which is kind of it doesn't seem like it's that big of a thing but it's monumental necessarily when you're talking about uh the outcomes of the two i think so i liked martin over lacy and i think they could have done a little better at 32 um like dillard dingler dylan dingler was a guy out of ohio state that i like a lot um the tigers took him at 38th um and so i, I just gave it a b minus i thought it was fine i think it would have been an a uh, and the a, if it was Martin, and that A would have only been punctuated by uh, taking by getting Martin uh, with that fourth pick when he should have gone one, second or you know possibly first. Um, so, but I just think that everything after after everything after Lacey was just like okay, that's fine. Was there you know obviously the, a lot of the teams weren't able to look at these guys much this season. I mean, looking back in the draft. I mean, obviously, it's a lot different because it was a five-round draft. But did it seem like maybe the talent pool was worse, or I mean, we, we just don't know? I mean, did, did things kind of go as you thought they would, or did yeah. you, were there any kind of surprises from from the two days of the draft? So, I mean, it was definitely surprises, right? Because by pick, I don't know, six, everybody's like mock drafts were blown up, basically. Like nobody got two right, nobody got three right. Then, because nobody got two or three right, they pretty much didn't get four and five right. Um, and then him, Hancock fell, which was a popular Royals pick at four, so they pretty much missed six. And then Gonzalez was in the range, Hassel was in range, but Zach Veen was maybe going to go earlier, so they probably got nine wrong as well. Um, so I thought it was crazy, and maybe this happens on a normal draft, um, but I do think that the shortened time frame uh, messed everything up. And I think I think it's more. I think the the outcome of the draft or the order that it went in, as far as players picked, uh, the craziness has more to do with the uh, shortened time frame that they got to see the players, as opposed to the shortened length of the draft. Um, because there's probably guys that you know move up or down um, a lot more, like Austin Hendrick. I bet he was probably a guy who might have been able to go earlier. Um, and then you've got a guy like the Rangers took with Justin Fos- uh, Justin Foscue, who was like. Okay, where'd that pick come from? Uh, who went 14th overall? And there are plenty of guys that you know unanimously were ranked much higher than him. Um, and then there's I'm trying to think who else there was. Oh, and then the Red Sox just kind of punted. <laughs> like when they took Nick York at 17th, 
I don't I don't remember what the highest he was, but I think he was like 200 or something on like BA's top 500, and it was just like there were this was a very weird draft, and I chalk it up a lot to teams just kind of playing it safer in a way, in the sense that they kind of wanted to get maybe their guy early and then not even like worry too much afterwards. But then you've got teams like uh, the Padres who took Cole Wilcox and whatever it was the third or fourth. Uh, who should have been probably a day one guy. They just said, forget it. We're just going to attack this draft and use all the capital we can. As, and then you've got teams like the Orioles, right, who took Kierstead second, probably under slot, and then tried to spread that money out. Maybe don't dis- maybe don't agree with the picks that they're trying to spread it out on. Um, but, you know, there were some teams that tried to do just the normal slot game. So um, I, I very enjoyable draft, I'll say that. Yeah, one thing that did strike me, and I guess it shouldn't be a surprise at all, is it was the fewest high schoolers taken – in the last couple of years, I mean, only 33 guys went in the first 100 picks out of high school. I mean, it's just, you, yeah. you don't know as much from these high school kids since most of them didn't have a season. So that yeah. didn't surprise me. I think teams, you're right, teams did play think, it safe. I think that's going to be a trend going forward. I, I don't think that's just a function of this draft. I think teams are going to stop taking high school players as much, particularly high school pitchers. Uh, the first one was Mick Abel at uh, 15th to the Phillies, I believe. Um, and... Uh, like that's the latest I think a, a pitcher's ever gone, a high school pitcher's ever gone. I think that's going to be the more normal. I think you're going to see a lot more college guys at the top um, as teams get a bit more analytical and kind of understand that the return, the risk reward is a lot better for college guys early than it is um, a lot of high school guys. Set aside obviously your Buxton, your Buxtons and your Harpers, those guys that are just like obviously so freaking good um, that you know they're going to go that early. Matthew, looking at the Royals, I guess, small draft class of just six players, it's kind of weird to talk about a draft class with that few players. Um, but, you know, the Royals seem to kind of go in a lot of different directions. They took some some college guys, one high school kid, uh, mostly a lot of pitchers, one hitter at least. Is there anyone that kind of stands out on day two of the draft from you, uh, for you that, that maybe you think uh, could be a little intriguing, maybe someone that um, that's kind of is a, is a dark horse in the uh, farm system at some point? Yeah, I think well, I think those are kind of two two sort of different questions. If you're talking about like a dark horse um, in the farm system, I think that um, a guy like Tyler Gentry could be um, somebody to watch out for. Um, he has uh, he hit what was it, 17 home runs uh, or no four four home runs in 17 games, and he hit 429 this year. So he was you know he was on fire, and if that's more indicative of of what he uh, is then I think that the Royals could have a pretty decent uh, bat on their hands. Um, you know, one of the consequences of the shorter season is that in every draft, there's always some guys who make noise based on, you know, their their last season, and it like really does matter if these if these guys are hitting you know 400 with x amount of home runs, like it, that really matters. And you can always dream on all of these guys that if they had a full season, they would have gone higher, you know? Um, so that's, that's, that is one, uh, thing to think about, um, is, you know, when you, when you do start to get a little bit, uh, you know, giddy about how good a player could be, that's the same pretty much for all of the players because, uh, you know, they didn't get a chance to show their stuff, um, when it, you know, was really super important this year. Um, 
as far as who I think is the most interesting, I think the Royal selection of Ben Hernandez is is the most interesting. So over the last couple of years, the Royals have very clearly gone towards college pitchers. Um, obviously, you know, a couple drafts ago with uh, Singer and his friends, um, that was the you know the big oh I guess the Royals are going with college pitchers moment. But last year they took a lot of, a lot of college pitchers too. They didn't really take any high schoolers, and then you know with with this being an apparently deep draft for college pitching, a lot of people were thinking, oh, the Royals are going to pick a college pitcher, you know, with 41, you know, whoever's best left on the board. And they didn't. They went with a high school pitcher. And what's also weird about it is that he's a high school pitcher with a really good changeup, which is another just really weird thing for the Royals because they tend to like uh, pitchers with good, you know, hard secondary stuff like curveball or sliders, they don't pick guys with really good changeups very often. And lately, they haven't picked high schoolers very often. So to have a high school pitcher with an excellent changeup, that is, I'm really fascinated to see how that turns out. Um, what success the Royals have had with pitching has been mostly with college uh, pitchers, with college players. Um, and they have really had, you know, some some pretty big busts with high schoolers. Not that they haven't too with college pitchers. I mean, Kyle Zimmer is is one example of a pitcher that they drafted really high and didn't pan out. Um, but it'll it'll be interesting to watch Hernandez and see if uh, you know he'll he'll turn out the way that the Royals want him to. Um, I think that's the guy that you want to keep your you know your eyes on the most um, because it he it was enough of a deviation um, from what they normally do or what their new normal is that I think that could be a signal that um, there's something they really like about him um, and that's a changeup so I'm it, yeah it's just very weird keep an eye on him yeah with the high school pitchers a lot of times it's like they usually have a pretty good pretty live fastball. And maybe a great, you know, breaking ball because that's how they got high school hitters out. And it's a changeup that's usually the reason why they either have to move to the bullpen or never get past like a ball. And with Hernandez, yeah, he's pretty intriguing because he already has a really great feel for that changeup. That's kind of his out pitch. You feel like, you know, maybe if his breaking stuff isn't that great now, that with the technology they have, with you know, kind of the, you know, the, the you know, the technology they have for for spin rate and that they can help him improve that and get uh, a really good professional level breaking ball. And he's, you know, his fastball is nothing and he's no slouch. He throws in the low nineties, which is pretty good for a high schooler. So yeah, that's pretty promising. That's a, that's a potential three pitch mix that could at least give him a chance to be a, a starter at the big league level at some point. So a lot of, you know, high school guys are very, very uh, risky. Um, pitchers are very risky, but it's, uh, you know, in the second round, I think that's probably a gamble worth taking. So I think that was a really good choice for them and a, a guy to definitely keep an eye out for. Um, well, the draft wasn't the only opportunity to add amateur talent for the Royals. Uh, teams could also draft or sign undrafted free agents. But this year they were limited to offering no more than a $20,000 bonus, which kind of uh, left free agents to choose their team based on reasons other than money. A lot of people were speculating that the Royals, who are one of the few teams to promise to pay their minor leaguers all summer without any kind of mass releases, might be best situated to take advantage of this new undrafted free agent market. And in, in the first couple days, it appears that's correct so far. Uh, of the undrafted free agents that were ranked on Baseball America's top 500 prospect list, four of the top five were signed by the Royals. Uh, Sean, I guess 
we have to ask. I mean, there was an article at the Wall Street Journal this week. Uh, I think Sports Illustrated had, had one as well. It almost kind of seems like treating players like people and human beings is a new market inefficiency. Is this a strategy that worked for the Royals? And, and, and what did you think of the undrafted uh, free agent signings they've made so far? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that obviously uh, rang out kind of the minor league or the potential minor league and agents and kind of professional and amateur baseball. Um, I'm a little I'm a little dubious on it, like it being that big of a deal because like I think the Astros had like eight guys or something signed and obviously they aren't necessarily uh, playing by the rules. Um, I think I think the Red Sox had the most players signed at least at this point. Um, so yeah, so there's a little bit of quantity and quality, but I do think that there was not just good PR, but I think there was, um, you know, a, a nice positive impact for what the Royals did. Um, as far as, so it's a cool story, I think, but ultimately we're talking about guys that, I mean, they were free basically, which, you know, it was kind of nice or it was kind of an added bonus, but you know, we're talking about, I think the highest guy was like. I want to say 176. Maybe that's yeah, too that high. About right. No, that sounds about right. Um, so it's like, the rest okay, of the guys were great. Well, the rest of the guys were in the 300. So I mean, right, like three, what, when you're talking about like what round would these guys have been drafted? I mean, yeah. what kind of ta- what kind of level of talent do you think we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, you see guys. So you can. So 174. Kale uh, Imshoff was at 174. Uh, but yeah, there's some 440s, 357s. Uh, so level of talent. I mean. Imshoff would be like a day two guy, definitely uh, under a classical draft. Um, but I think that like Saul Garza or Chase Wallace, uh, probably like a pass, like the 10th round at least, you know, they could be like a senior sign, which the only reason a senior sign goes early is on, it, you know, how much money he's willing to accept as opposed to the talent. So I think that they're more so after the 10th round kind of guys, but it's a great story and it's a nice benefit it's better to have those players than not to have those players because there's been many diamonds in the rough found um but i do think it's a lot better story than the impact that it might have um so i think there's a balance of like oh that's great but let's also be realistic the 440th ranked overall player in the draft is nice to have but his impact's probably not going to be uh at the major league level so it's it's at least great that the royals benefited from you know treating their players uh well yeah, and like all these undrafted free agents, I mean, they went undrafted kind of for a reason, and they signed for a reason. Because most of the good undrafted players are returning yeah. to school, so these are guys like like Kale Emsoff. He had Tommy John surgery; he missed a year, so that that kind of you know marked him down for, for some teams, and he probably doesn't want to go back to school and, and risk you know getting hurt again or whatever. Uh, John McMillan, uh, the Texas uh, was it Texas Tech pitcher who throws 100 miles an hour, uh, he has some command issues uh, and had kind of turned down some big bonuses before. So maybe he wants to get his pro career started. Uh, Saul Garza, who you mentioned, the LSU catcher, uh, good, good power, but had also gotten moved off the catching position. Look, sounds like he kind of lost his job uh, behind the catcher, behind the dish and had moved to like DH, which makes him less valuable. So, you know, these are guys that you're, you're right. They're not like top prospects or anything, but you also, as you point out, they're also basically free. Uh, yeah. The Royals aren't really paying anything for them. So if you get anything out of them, I mean, it's a huge plus. Uh, Matthew, I don't know. Is there, was there anyone, uh, the the crop of undrafted free agents that you liked, and and what did you and do you think that the Royals 
kind of being nice and being being a, uh, a you know treating minor leaguers like human beings could have some any kind of long term effects for them. I think that um, in this draft particularly, um, we may see more players who were undrafted. Um, or, you know, as Sean said, would have been drafted in, you know, eight rounds eight to twelve or whatever. I think I think we might see more players like that um, contribute than would otherwise do so in a normal draft. And I say this because again, the season was cut short. So if you have a guy who's a tenth rounder uh, coming into his junior season or his senior season as it may be, and he just does extremely well, well he'll he'll move up, right? But the problem with these players um, and with evaluating these players is that the Royals and the rest of baseball didn't get a chance to see what would happen. So it's entirely possible that some of these guys uh, were only undrafted because of, of what they had done previously. And there's plenty of players, plenty of examples of players who have even gotten into the first round based on really strong senior careers, albeit those guys were, were ranked higher in the first place. But... You know, you can you can raise your draft stock pretty well with an excellent season, and uh, it's more just of a of a grab bag, I guess. You know, there's more uncertainty, and because there's more uncertainty, the chances of you picking up someone who is pretty good um, or who ends up better than they are expected to be is probably higher than it used to be. Um, and as far as the Royals, you know, being nice, being a market a market inefficiency, you know, that's that's kind of an interesting tongue-in-cheek way to say it. But, I mean, I, I, I've thought for a long time that one of the things that teams can do to um, have an advantage or build an advantage for themselves other teams don't is to be progressive in areas like the Royals have been. So they have kept all their players. They are paying all their players. And as a result undrafted players want to sign with them. And I think that that kind of thinking, that way of thinking is really um, an inefficiency um, in that, you know, if, if all of these teams are not paying the players, they're not feeding the players well, and they're not um, doing all these sorts of things um, that, uh, you know, players or that, that, they're not doing these sorts of things that players uh, that should be done to players in order to give them the best chance to succeed. Um, and if the Royals start doing that, um, then I think that is that is a way for them to get some more talent than they couldn't otherwise. Um, you think about it like even something like nutrition, right? I mean, we've seen other teams, um, you know, develop nutrition programs for their minor leaguers, but it's a comparatively low cost thing to do. Um, and most teams don't really dabble in it that much. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for teams to invest money into uh, situations in order to make their minor leaguers better. That doesn't uh, that isn't directly applied to the baseball field, right? So you feed your minor leaguers better. Um, you put them up in housing so they don't have to pay for housing, so they don't have to, um, you know, spend their money on uh, on on things that they would otherwise be able to have if they were making a living wage, which they're not. Um, so I, I I think this is sort of scratching the surface of what teams can do for their minor leaguers um, and for their international leagues. Um, in order to put them in the best position to succeed. And 
uh, currently a lot of teams aren't doing that. And if the Royals use this as a way to kickstart their own program of sorts, um, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, you think of what the Royals used to do with the Royals Academy back, um, you know, some decades ago. Um, you know, I think the time is ripe for something like that to happen again. I did like there was a quote in a piece by The Athletic today uh, from a rival executive kind of commenting on what Dayton Moore did. And, and he said, like, you know, Dayton Moore is a good man. It was a good idea. But uh, he's like, they'll, they'll make those cuts eventually over the season. And like, you know, this is all PR spin. And, you know, he did a great job mastering the media. I'm like, well... If it's that easy, dude, why didn't you do it too? <laughs> like, uh, you know, right. I'm sure the player, even if the player is, if they're going to get cut late in the year, I'm sure they appreciate getting a paycheck right now instead of, you know, getting released in, in May like a lot of the other teams did. So, I mean, it just seemed like a lot of sour grapes by a rival executive. But, uh, Sean, what, you know, the draft is over now, and I don't know when we're ever going to see these players actually play baseball because uh, I'm sure the minor league season is, is going to be a wash at this point. But uh, is there, you know, what's the state of the farm system at this point with Aza Lacey, assuming he signs, Nick Lofton? Um, has the farm system changed much? Are the strengths and weaknesses still about the same? How do you kind of assess things? Yeah, so I think I think it moved a little bit. I, th- I mean, you add a top 100 prospect. I think you can argue what Lacey is. Um, I'm pulling up Fancraft's board as we talk because they've actually nicely included uh Draft prospects. Yeah, so I think, I think they had like top, top he's 75 or 40, something like that. Or 40, 47. 49. Oh, okay, 49. Yeah. yeah. He, maybe he moved because I think they've been adding. So yeah. right now, yeah, Lacey's 49th with more guys. I, I think they're adding them as we go. Um, so you've got like, the, yeah, you've got Lacey who's 49th. I think Witt uh, for them is top 25 or 30. He is 23rd. Um, then you got Lynch at 75 and Bubik at 117. So say four top. 120 prospects um two in the top 50 uh you know Lacey's 49 so you know two in the top 50 ish you could probably move them back and forth a bit um and then you got lynch and bubik um you know and that's without Coar and singer who i think some people yeah, think might be right. higher than that too exactly yeah yeah and so that's the subjectivity of it right so um and you could move any of these guys up or down like i would have obviously and i said in my article most on my thoughts i would have lynch above them all so it just kind of depends on who's listed is. Um, I think there's no doubt that the, it got stronger um, just because you've added a guy like Lacey. Uh, Lofton kind of got slotted. And again, we're just looking at fan graphs list here. Uh, Lofton went in at 10th, which is fine. I mean, you know, Ten not going to make them. system. 10th in the, the system. system. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So for a system that's not exactly like the Padres or something, um, becoming 10th isn't, you know, isn't like oh isn't a huge step necessarily he's a 45 uh future value which is uh, not quite fringe top 100 but it's enough where he could with a good season he could be in that 45 plus range which kind of puts you on the border edge of top 100 um but yeah i, I think the biggie is just getting lacy in the system and it definitely helped out the system because i mean you have the fourth overall pick you should get better um my concern my thought has always been i want to see a system grow not because of the new addition of talent, but of existing talent uh, moving upwards. So Bubik would be a good case of that, where a guy who wasn't valued very, very high was a long word. A guy who was not a top 100-ish prospect when he was drafted, um, probably kind of kept under the limelight too, and then had a, a strong uh, season in Wilmington and Lexington, and you know fell into that. Okay, now he's in top 100-ish range. Uh, that's the kind of stuff I like to see that proves the strength and the depth of a system as opposed to, 
oh, we have the second overall pick. We added Bobby Witt. Oh, we have the fourth overall pick. We added AC Lacey. So it's like, okay, I mean, you're getting these guys. You're just kind of injecting them into the system. But some of those guys are going to bust. So if you don't have the, the kind of uh, the guys you're going to take in the second, third, fourth, fifth rounds, if you don't have them improving and showing up on top 100 list, I think that's an issue. Um, and the Royals haven't – and let me be clear. I'm not saying the Royals have done that. Um, but – Bubik is a really good example of the kind of growth that you want to see in a system. A guy who was taken not in top five and not even obviously in the first round and having him kind of grow up uh, in the system. So that's what I, I think. I, I think that you move up a little bit. You have to by adding Lacey. Um, but they're probably still in that back 20. They're no longer 29th or whatever they kind of bottomed out at. But I still don't think that they're in the top 15 just yet. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, the latest on baseball's labor negotiations and a possible return of the sport. Well, owners and players continued to trade barbs and acrimonious negotiations throughout this week, but it appeared as if they had a breakthrough on Wednesday with a productive meeting that owners claimed laid the framework for an agreement to resume baseball. Well, owners thought they had an agreement on a 60-game season with the full pro rate of salary began the season in mid-July, but players came back and said they did not have an agreement and instead countered with the 70-game season that owners uh, objected to. Uh, Matthew, at this point, uh, you know, we've had some a lot of back and forth. Uh, you know, at one point, Rob Manfred said there would be a season. Then he came back a couple days later and said he wasn't sure there would be a season. At this point, I mean, by the time this podcast drops, drops they could have an agreement or they could say, oh, it's the whole thing's off. What at this point, speaking right now, what is your sense on what the likelihood uh, there is of there being a baseball season this year, and how many games do you think they'll be able to play? Yeah, I think so. I think um, that smart money is that on a season to happen um, over the weekend. You know, maybe that wasn't wasn't so uh, that wasn't true, especially on Monday when baseball basically said, you know, hey, uh, you have to waive your right to. Uh, file legal grievances um, or else there's no season. Um, but over the past couple of days, um, the um, Manfred and the, the leader of the uh, Players Association, you know, got together and they hashed some stuff out. Um, and I think the current squabble, which is about how many games that they're going to pay, are going to play, excuse me, um, the the owners want 60 and the players want 70. Well, I don't know if you uh, can really do this very intense math, but if you average it out, you get 65, <laughs> right? And that's like that's five games away from both of their like number figures, and that's that's I I think that that's pretty likely. Um, the the only reason why this is a contention is because essentially um, the owners um, feel like they won't be as profitable or will perhaps lose money if they play too many games without fans in the stands. Um, the players have basically wanted to play as many games as possible, getting the, fro- the, the full prorated salaries, which makes sense, and that's it's been pretty consistent. The players have wanted full prorated salaries for however many games they're, they're able to get. Um, but the owners, um, you know, they have a money situation to think of um, in regards to 
you know, fans not being at the stadiums and the fans not bringing the revenues that they would normally bring. Um, and personally, I think that's a little, I, I think that's a little overblown as we've seen with the Royals um, just recently with John Sherman's purchase of the team. Um, owning a baseball team is extremely lucrative. Um, if not from a day-to-day perspective um, or in terms of yearly revel- revenue, in terms of um, just overall investment return. So David Glass bought the team for like $100 million back in 2000. I think it was $96 million, uh, exactly, but up for about $100 million. Then 20 years later, he sold it for a billion dollars. <laughs> I just, I, I simply do not know how owners can really quibble about money so much when they have an asset that can, you know, there's no other asset that you can reasonably and realistically expect to get that kind of return on your investment. And the Royals aren't even the most, uh, you know, they're at the very bottom of team valuation. There are teams that are two, three, four billion dollars in valuation. That's, and, and they're they're only going to continue getting more valuable because that's just what they've done. Um, so ultimately, it's 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 been very stressful for everyone involved. And I think baseball has sort of bungled the rollout of this. You know, um, had they been able to agree earlier and had the owners just said, okay, fine, we'll do 80 games. We'll start on July 4th. Let's do this. Baseball would have had. Um, you know, some weeks or maybe months, depending on when the NBA gets their stuff together, um, of being the only sport on TV. And that, to me, seems way, way more valuable than losing, you know, 20 games worth of salaries to the players. Um, but, you know, I what do I know? I don't own a baseball team. so <laughs> I, I do want to push back a little bit on, on the value. You know, they, they do have this tremendous asset that is worth, you know, billions of dollars. But, of course, that's not cash in their pocket so sure. john sure. sherman walks into the situation he already is cash poor because he just spent you know him and his ownership group spent a billion dollars they didn't get to enjoy the revenues of the last couple of years so you i could understand i guess him and some of the other owners that are heavily leveraged saying like look we don't want to add more debt to what we already have um you know we, we can't just you know take out a mortgage on the team um or actually i guess they could actually um and, and, but but they may not want to, um, you know, add to their debt. On the other hand, you know, they, Bill Shaken of the LA Times had a quote of something like, "The owners could kind of make up the difference by financing it with super low interest rates right now. They just don't want to. They don't want to add the debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why they haven't really talked about deferrals. It's like, well, like, we we can pay for it if we wanted to. We could pay for the, the players' salaries. That's not a problem. Uh, we just don't want to. <laughs> so." Uh, yeah, it's yeah. been really frustrating. And, and, you know, talking about the timing of this thing, too, it's like if they had figured this out in March or April, players would be in camp right now and we'd be starting the season in a, in a week or two. And it's incredibly frustrating because, you know, the owners are supposed to negotiate in good faith per their agreement with players in March. And it it really feels like their strategy is to just, you know, sit, wait out the clock. And, uh, you know, like you say, they don't they want to play as few regular season games as possible to have that lucrative postseason where, you know, they they just signed a billion dollar deal with Turner to broadcast the playoffs. Uh, you know, that's spread out over years, but they, they'll get 700 to 700 million to eight to a billion dollars this year from the from the playoffs. So uh, that's the kind of the prize for them. And so if they if they can reduce their expenses in the regular season, that is uh, that's 
that's how they can kind of mitigate their losses this year with having you no know, fans. And so you can see their strategy kind of being, let's just wait out the clock. If we get, you know, if we get 60 games or so, that'll be kind of a good, you know, point where we're not, they're probably still losing money, but not as much money as they were going to before. But of course that, that, that's bad for players. And that's really bad for fans because we want to see more baseball, not less. Uh, a 60 game season hardly seems like a season at all. I'll take it because it's baseball, but um, anyway, it's just it's really frustrating that it's coming down to mid June and we still don't have an agreement or even players in camp yet. So, Sean, what's your kind of your take on the labor negotiations? Negotiations. I know you're maybe a little more owner um, mm-hmm. friendly than than a lot of other writers on our site, but um, but has uh, just been really a very frustrating experience for you as a fan? Yeah, totally. I mean, and I think. Yes, I wouldn't call myself an apologist, but I do think that sometimes folks get too on the player side, which I I agree you should almost always agree with labor side of things, but I don't think that the kind of quote unquote labor side should always get everything they want necessarily because it is a give and take in kind of a labor relationship. Um, so I, I do think the owners quabbling over ten games or one hundred percent prorated pay is really stupid, um, and obviously I was completely against the uh, minor league players not being paid. Um, I think that's another thing that was just so easy for owners to do and just, to be honest, so cheap. And unfortunately, it's cheap for them to do. It should be very costly for them to have minor leaguers because they should be paid, uh, you know, a a normal wage. Um, But uh, I I do think that, yeah, I mean, it's just been total, just terrible. And part of me at one point, I was like, you know what? I don't care about the season anymore. We're not going to have it. I kind of, you know, came to grips with it. Just assume that whatever we got the draft, um, you know, obviously I love the minor league. So it's like, well, we aren't going to have any minor league. So kind of what's the point. Um, but yeah, I mean, if we can get 60 games, 70 games, that works obviously, but you know, we, we always want more. Um, I like the expanded playoffs. Happy about that. I'm probably one of the few people that likes expanded playoffs, but I mean, I've got no problem with uh, what is, did they say? Sixteen teams? Yeah, so Am I right there? As part of the yeah, uh, proposal uh, with players, the, uh, the they would expand the playoffs from ten to sixteen teams in both twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. There'd also be a universal DH uh, for both leagues for both years. And you have to imagine that once that's out of the bag, they're not going to go back. I mean, that that's probably going to yeah. be a permanent. Uh, permanent oh yeah, addition. I, yeah. I cried when I read that on Twitter about the Universal DH. My, our <laughs> national nightmare is finally over. I just can't stand it. Cardinals fans uh, probably are really crying over it. <laughs> I know. So, I, I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, it, what I tweeted out is that I think that if we have to sacrifice 120 games, call it. Uh, 120, sorry. So, if we have to sacrifice 100 games uh, and have a 60-ish game season, if we have to sacrifice that to get a Universal DH – expanded playoffs that works for me um because if that's uh you know into perpetuity um i would i would have sacrificed an entire baseball season just to get the dh that's how much i i love the dh the idea of it and how it needed to be expanded so i think it's i think it it stinks um that a lot of minor league players had to be excuse me didn't have to be were released um but and obviously you know front office staff and not just like the higher ups, but you know, the accountants, the HR managers, they got ding took, you know, I think it was the Mariners. I want to say took a 20% pay cut on everybody making like 75,000 or less. And it's like, or 75,000 or more. Um, and I was like, man, $75,000 in Seattle is not that much money. Um, so I don't know. It kind of sucks that a lot of folks had to hurt to see 
millionaires and billionaires kind of fight it out um, for their share of the pie. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it, it's a very dark spot on the history of baseball, but I think that it's very, very easy to get past it. I think, well, I think expanded playoffs will, because currently there are over 50% of teams that make the playoffs. I think that'll sort itself out a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things that people have talked about um, even before um, the uh, pandemic and this whole this whole thing this year was um, expansion. You know, people were already talking about it because it's been a long time since baseball has expanded. And um, I saw a graph somewhere where it looks uh, it like assigns population of the United States, like per team. Um, and it's um, higher, you know, now than it's been, you know, in, in decades. Um and so the the game, um, you know, doesn't need to be diluted, I don't think. But I think there is definitely opportunity for some more teams. Um, it's, you know, the population has grown enough. And, you know, baseball is a international enough sport that it, I think it could support it. And everybody would be happy. And also... Um, expanding uh, the league would allow owners to recoup some of the losses, right? So when uh, there's an expansion, um, new owners have to pay an expansion fee in the uh, realm of hundreds of millions of dollars um, to the league, which then gets distributed out to the uh, owners. So I think having a 16-team playoff with 30 teams doesn't make so much sense over the long run, but I mean, I think it's pretty likely we'll see a couple teams added in the next, you know, five to 10 years, maybe even sooner, who knows. Um, and then that'll be, you know, 16 teams with 32 or 16 playoff teams with 32 total teams. So I think that, I think that'll work itself out. Um, and you know, the NBA has a lot of playoff teams too. And, you know, nobody really compare, you know, complains about that so much. So it, we'll get over that. Um, like Sean, I am pretty happy that the DH, um, is going to be implemented everywhere. If only because all of this, arguments about the DH, um, you know, all of these arguments about the DH will stop. Um, you know, I, I think people like what they grew up with. So I grew up um, in Cleveland and Kansas City, and so I like the American League. I like the DH, you know. But people who grew up in St. Louis and uh, Chicago and have, you know, grown up watching these these teams use, the, uh, use pitchers as hitters, um, or to be more accurate, to use pitchers as statues at the plate, um, the, you know they they miss the you know additional um, tactics that go along with it, which I, I do think there are some additional tactics, um, but I think it was it's sort of inevitable inevitable really. I mean, once the DH was um, was adopted, pitchers had been declining in terms of how good they were hitting for, you know, decades before that. And that's continued ever since the DH was adopted. So I really think it was, it's, it's inevitable that it would happen, whether or not it's this year or five years or 10 years or 20 years, like the national league would have adopted the DH at some point and adopting the DH lets them do things like they were going to do, uh, like they're doing this year, which is to have you know shortened seasons with uh, interleague play based on geography. Um, it really just sort of opens it up, and also it opens up to the possibility that if you have like uh, 31 teams or 33 teams, then it's also not much of an issue because interleague play is fine because everyone's playing with the same set of rules. Um, so it's I I personally like it, but also for the people who like who are really sad that the NL is going to have the DH for now unto perpetuity, it was going to happen at some point. 
Um, that's just the direction of the league ever since the DH was initially adopted decades ago. Yeah, I'm more of a purist, so I, you know, I, I kind of liked the dichotomy between leagues where the AL had a DH and the National League didn't. I was, I was, you know, I grew up an AL fan, uh, so I was always for the DH, and I always liked. I enjoyed dunking on the National League and saying, "Look how silly those pitchers look," pit, you know, hitting, um, <laughs> running around the bases in their little jackets. Uh, but you know, the writing was on the wall. You're right. I mean, it was going to happen eventually. It, it makes sense. National League is like pretty much the only league in the world that doesn't have a DH. You know, high school, collegiate level, foreign leagues, they all have, the minor leagues all have DHs. Um, it makes sense to have a, an actual good hitter up there instead of a pitcher bunting or flailing away. So it, I made peace with that. Expanded playoffs, I'm still going to resist, a, I think, a little bit. It depends how it's implemented. I, I, I kind of like the one game off for the wild card, but I don't want to see like top teams bounced because of one game. So if there was something like where like, like the fifth seed and the eighth seed played a one-game playoff and the sixth, sixth and seventh seed played a one-game playoff or something like that, I could be that might be kind of exciting because you're gonna the seventh and eighth seed are gonna be losing teams a lot of times, um, and or you know teams around 500, possibly losing record. I'm not really down with those kind of teams getting very far in the playoffs. I think that's that really does a disservice to the uh, regular season. But if you make it really hard for them to advance, um, then then I think. I'm okay with it. I mean, if it gives more teams a chance to make the playoffs, then that's fine. I just don't want to see an eight seed in the World Series. That's all. Yeah, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking about like an NBA, like how an eighty or whatever the forty, I don't whatever, I don't, whatever the NBA's five hundred record is forty whatever and forty whatever. Um, I was thinking, could that happen? And I, I'd have to go look back. But just last year. The, I mean, the Indian, the Cleveland were 93 and 69, and they missed the playoffs. So they would have made it. The Mets at 86 and 76 would have made it. The uh, Diamondbacks at 85, 77, and then Boston at 84, 78. So I think I think it's possible an 81 and 81 team could make it. But I think you're going to see a lot more like those 84, 85, 86 win teams and the 81, 80, 79 win teams. But yeah, I'm with you. I. I I would almost be fine with a, a minimum threshold of you need to win at least this many games to make the playoffs. And that minimum games used to be like 83 and you need, to, and then if you win 83, you're playing a one game playoff against the team that won 85 or something like that. Yeah. I saw there's a tweet uh, that, uh, that did kind of go back and look at who would have made the playoffs. Like the, there were, so you do have some losing teams like in 2017. Oh, you did. Yeah. Oh, okay. so 2017, the Royals would have made the playoffs at 80 and 82. Uh, with the Rays and the Angels, well, one of the Royals, Rays, or Angels, I think actually two of the Royals, A's and Rangers, would, Angels would have made it. The Marlins would have made it with 77 wins. Uh, it's not an every year thing, but a lot of the years, I mean, you have the 2013, a National League team would have made it with 76 wins. Oh, so no. It, it would happen. It You know, in the NBA, it happens not every year, but most years, the eighth seed is a losing team. Now, yeah. in the NBA, I think wins are spread out a little bit more than the Major League Baseball. Major League teams kind of cluster around 81 wins a lot more. So I don't think you'll get, like, a super bad team in there. Like, even an 80-win 80, 80 team, like the Royals in 2017 were a decent team. Yeah. Um, that, they could have that, that actually did contend for a playoff spot. Yeah. But um, I, I don't, I don't want to see that team in the World Series. But here's the thing, though. I will sacrifice as many 78-win teams as possible to make the playoffs. If it means that Mike Trout, for the rest of his career, 
gets a shot every year to be in the playoffs because I'm so tired of <laughs> I will I will always root for Mike Trout in the playoffs unless he's playing the Royals and the only time he's been in the playoffs is when he was playing the Royals. <laughs> so it's it stinks that we are having Mike Trout now whatever he is 29 and having three playoff games in his entire career. So oh, yeah, we got to lower the standards to get Mike Trout in the playoffs. I, I understand. I'm fine by that. <laughs> uh, well, this will probably be the, be the first salvo and what's going to be a really acrimonious negotiation next year when the collective bargaining agreements up and Matthew, you had a pretty critical argument about kind of the powers that be and how they're running baseball. Uh, can you explain a little bit about your frustration with uh, what's going on? Yeah. And so I wrote, I wrote this and it's, it's, uh, you know, inspired by recent events, obviously. Um, but it also is looking back at, um, other, you know, not so recent events. I mean, it's still recent, but you know, not like, Oh, this just happened yesterday. Um, uh, I think that, um, the, the owners and the commissioner and the powers that be have been acting, um, in ways that sort of suggest that they don't really like um, what they do and they don't like to watch baseball. Um, and they don't, they don't like the sport very much. Um, you know, I think, uh, the first thing obviously is that the owners don't want, uh, they want fewer games. They want as few games as possible. Um, and multiple owners don't even want to play that season. Um, so there was a report that came out recently where, Multiple owners don't really want to play at all. And I just don't understand how you can own a major league baseball team and, you know, hey, you might lose money, but you don't want to even play a season. Like, why, why are you owning a team? Um, and, you know, the, the whole uh, direction of the negotiations as led by Manfred recently is just has just been just a really mess, really messy situation. And I, you know, if he if he liked the game, you know more i think that you'd see a different set of um ideals that the owners would would value um like like we were, i was talking about earlier like we were talking about earlier there's lots of reasons why you would want to play uh games in front of a captive american public you know just think of what it could do for the game in the long-term situation that'd be you know great for baseball if they could play a month just baseball and everybody would be into it. You know that that'd be fantastic. That'd be do some that do some really great things for the game. Um, it would be looking beyond the dollars and cents of the exact moment. But that's what you would do if you have baseball's best interests in mind. Um, another thing that they would do if they had best uh, baseball's best interests in mind is you know to not cut cut off uh, 40 minor league teams. You know I don't understand that if your job is to make baseball as popular as possible and to, um, you know, make your league as profitable as possible, as possible over the long run. I just legitimately don't understand why you would cut down 40 teams out of the minor leagues and remove 40 cities basically from your product in its early stages, just to save a few dollars that also just doesn't seem to have the best interest of the league in the long term and the sport in long term in mind. And also the third thing that I mentioned is um, we've been seeing a lot of people, um, namely announcers, but not just announcers who are just constantly complaining about how bad the sport is, right? How long the sport is and how soft the sport is and how it used to be better a long time ago. You know, you don't really see that type of uh, thinking 
in other sports, right? It's not like the, the NFL players are like, oh man, this isn't like skillful. It was way more skillful decades ago. I mean, you do get some people who are like, oh man, I can't hit people and cause concussions right and left. But, you know, those people aren't the, you know, the people who are leading the voices of, of the NFL. Um, the people, uh, there have been a lot of people in baseball and in the media who have just you know, really complained about baseball for a long time. And, you know, Manfred's constantly uh, searching for ways to improve the game, you know, with all of these tinkering with managers being able to go out to the, the pitcher and, you know, all this stuff. It just, it's, it doesn't show any faith in the core product, which is that baseball is great, that Major League Baseball as an institution is pretty cool, um, and that people around the country want to play baseball and you should want them to play baseball, but it, it just doesn't seem like they have the sport's best long-term interest in mind. And it doesn't seem like they like it. Yeah. I, th- I already sense that the, the current negotiations are already driving some fans away. And uh, you know, if there's a work stoppage next year, that's just going to be just devastating for the sport. So, you know, hopefully cooler heads prevail and baseball can have maybe better stewardship here in the future. Uh, because uh, the sport really can't take uh, another work stoppage and just driving more fans away. Um, let's kind of wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Sean, do you want to start it off for us tonight? Yeah, um, my review surprise is going to be another film. Um, I watched uh, Defy Bloods, which is Spike Lee's new joint, as he calls it. Um, phenomenal. Uh what I think is maybe his best film. I, I, I said kind of it's pound for pound, the best film, uh, he's done, uh, thought it was just great. Perfect timing for it. Um, wasn't a film, wasn't a film made for me. Wasn't a film probably made for Matt Lamar. No offense, Matt Lamar. Um, it was a film taken. Yeah, no, I, (laughs) I thought you'd be cool with me saying that. Uh, it was a film made for black empowerment. Um, a little bit of it is made to show the sacrifices that black soldiers and black lives have had um, on in the history of America and the way that they've shaped America. Um, and I, I, there's part of that in the film, but the film is mostly, in my opinion, as a white man, uh, mostly made for a black empowerment film. And it's just phenomenal. Um, what I loved is there's a lot of intersection of um, old film clips, uh, not film clips, newsreel, um, old newsreel stuff uh, spread all throughout. Um, and one thing I absolutely love, I thought was genius, was it's a it's a flashback. Uh, it's a semi flashback, I'd say. They probably spend about 65 percent of the time at in quote unquote current day, and then uh, the remainder 35 percent at uh, back in the 64 or whatever year it was with the Vietnam War that they're that they're in Vietnam. And uh, instead of using younger actors for their younger selves, um, they just stuck the older actors uh, in it. So they didn't even totally broke that. Um, I can't think of the word. They totally broke that. Like, oh, we need to cast someone younger to play the younger version of the other person. Uh, they just went with the older actors, which I thought was just genius. And it doesn't it doesn't throw you off or take away anything from it. Um, and it's just a fantastic film. It highlights the atrocities of both sides, both what, um, you know, the U.S. was doing to its own troops, its black troops, and then what um, U.S. was doing to uh, Vietnamese um, citizens and soldiers. So fantastic film. It's it's. It's on Netflix. Um, I, I could not recommend it anymore. 
Sounds good. Uh, what about you, uh, Matthew? What do you got tonight? Yeah. So um, I so so first of all, uh, in terms of uh, movies that have been uh, you know particularly relevant um, in this current climate, um, if you haven't seen Just Mercy, Just Mercy is really good, um, and uh, it it tells the story of a um, a man who's on death row and a um, uh, who is black and then a black lawyer who goes down to Alabama to, um, you know, try to um, reverse what is a um, uh, an untrue sentencing. So he, he didn't do it, but he got uh, put on death row. And so the black lawyer who's played by um, Michael B. Jordan, is that right? Michael B. Jordan mm-hmm. um, yeah. goes down to, um, to, you know, be his lawyer. It's very good. Um, but to not have a only movie review um i would like to say that one of the things i've been enjoying is video games yes video games in general um i say this because um you know i'm i'm sure a lot of you have have binged a lot of stuff and you may be looking for something else or a little bored that you can't go out and watch concerts um, and or sporting events or whatnot um and you just don't want to start the next um, you know, the next thing on your list. I totally get that. Um, the thing about video games that I think is is really cool is that there is a game for everyone, literally everyone. So if you're listening, there is a game for you. Um, and I can guarantee it. Uh, there are games that are built and cre- created for all kinds of different players um, of skill levels uh, and of interest in narr- narration um, in the narrative. Um, so I would just suggest, you know, if if you're bored this quarantine, um, maybe just try poking around Steam, um, which is a free service. Um, it's kind of like iTunes, but for games, if you don't know what it is. Um, and just seeing what's available. You know, games have come a long way um, since Atari and River Raid um, and Pac-Man. Um, and there are a lot of games that are skill-based, um, but there are also a lot of games where you never die, there aren't any lives, um, and you can just play through a story in an interactive fashion that's really sort of unique. Um, and so, yeah, uh, my review is video games, and uh, go, go, go play a video game. Uh, I want to add to that, EA has a service that I stumbled upon, and I'm sure other people know about it, uh, called EA Access. It's on the PlayStation. I don't know if it's on the Xbox or not. Um, it's five bucks a month, and you can play... I, they've got to have 30 different games on there, um, including Madden 20, FIFA 20, um, some Battlefield. So, I mean, for five bucks a month, you can get a whole bevy of games that would cost you, you know, $60 a piece. So, if you're going to play games, I think EA Access also is a pretty good uh, service. And we know people have the time right now to play video games, so uh, that's a good recommendation. Uh, my recommendation this week uh, is uh, I noticed that two of my favorite restaurants in Kansas City went out of business uh, this week, or they announced they're going out of business. Nara in the Crossroads, uh, one of my favorite sushi places, which I think Carrington Harrison uh, tweeted it out. The, the, a great line is that pretty much everyone in Kansas City has gone on a date at Nara. Nara. Uh, so it's, it's sad to see them go out of business. And also, Boru Ramen uh, in Waldo, which was my favorite ramen place, uh, they, their, their bao was one of the best, I think, dishes in all of Kansas City for anything. Uh, unfortunately, they're going out of business as well. So my, my recommendation this week is to just support your local restaurants. Um, you know, I think Applebee's will be fine. I think McDonald's will be fine. If you can, 
Uh, please seek out your local restaurants. You don't have to dine in if you don't want to, although you can if, if you feel comfortable doing that. But but most of them are, are doing a great job uh, kind of conforming to uh, social distancing and, and, and uh, providing carryout and, and delivery. So definitely use uh, your, your local uh, restaurants. Try to avoid the, the third-party delivery services if you can because they do take a huge bite out of those uh, from the restaurants. But um, I've been going to... Uh, Taj Mahal and Waldo a lot. That's my kind of my my go-to Indian place. And then uh, I have a buddy that has a place, uh, a restaurant in Overland Park called Wiener Kitchen. Uh, we have great sandwich, great uh, hot dogs, uh, sausages, bratwurst. Uh, they've got a biscuits and gravy that I just I could drink the gravy. Um, and that's located in Overland Park, right by the Central Resource Library on 87th Street. But whatever your local restaurant that you like going to, I would just highly recommend uh, checking it out and getting some carry out once in a while. Uh, because they, they're a lot of them are family run businesses that keep their money here in Kansas city. So, so definitely the, uh, support them. The Boru one just stinks, man. Yeah. I love Boru so much. They hate their shishito peppers were so good. The ramen was phenomenal. And, um, yeah, their bow, they had the pork bow. They had a, yeah, so good. They had like the bow day or whatever. And it was mm-hmm. like a dollar for one. Oh, it was so good. Just um, perfect pork. Can, yeah, if I could give a props, there's a place called Shio Ramen um, on Broadway mm-hmm. that is, from everything I've heard, fantastic. Um, small little place, and it's I think they're open fully now. So anyways, if you are looking for good ramen, I've heard also amazing good things about Shio Ramen. Um, it's on Broadway. So, Well, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks again to Sean and Matthew for being on the show, and thanks to our readers and listeners for visiting our site, and we'll talk to you next time.